0: Okay, you guys, before we get to the show today, we have a very special message for Taylor Swindle. Taylor, first we wanted to say congratulations on your wedding and your husband, your new husband, Keith, has a very special message for you. He says he loves you so much and that you mean everything to him and the kids, Rowan, Shannon, and Coda, and they would be totally lost without you. And we just wanted to give you a shout out. He says you love the show. We are so honored. Yes, thank you so much for hanging out with us and listening to our show. We love you so much. And uh, again, congratulations. And now we will get on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hey, hey, Hey. 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 Uh, oh, oh. I've been watching a lot of Shit's Creek, so oh, that makes more sense now. Mm -hmm. I was honestly thinking you were going to go for like a Bear in the Big Blue House moment, where you're like just mind your own business, and like, (laughs) (gasps) it's you. (laughs) It's like giant, like eyebrows. He's like, how does he even see (laughs) out of there? Yeah, <laughs> doesn't he sniff? Doesn't he? Oh, he does. <gasps> but he's and always his so surprised. Yeah, but he's surprised yes. because his eyebrows take over everything. You know what I mean? Oh, speaking of not the same, but I was watching. There is a Nickelodeon. It's called The Orange Years, and it's a documentary oh, on. Oh yeah, I heard about that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Did you watch it? No, it's a documentary on who? On Nickelodeon and how they no, like. No, no, like where did you watch it? Oh, Hulu. Okay. I was like, I just said it. Um, <laughs> anyway, they were talking about Blue's Clues and, of course, Steve. Mm-hmm. And Steve apparently was like, he used to be a skater guy that just basically was like, he thought he was going in for voice work. And they were like, oh, actually, no, you're going to host this little kid's show. And they were like, you kind of have to wear like more conservative clothes. So they gave him, he they said that he hated the pants. But <laughs> That was like not his gig at all, but he does a great job. He does. He does a great job. Ben, a couple times when he's dressed himself, has been like, I want to look like Steve today because he, he really likes striped shirts. So he'll wear, mm-hmm. he'll put his khakis on like just by himself and then he'll put a striped shirt on. He's like, I'm Steve. <laughs> it's really uh, cute. Because if you use your mind and take a step at a time, you can do anything that you want to do. Mm-hmm. We do the mail a lot. You know, now the new one, they get email. Oh, God. hmm Oh, man. Mail time, mail time, mail time. So thank you so much to Megan Hudspeth for requesting this case. She just sent us a message and I was like, you got it, girl. You know what I mean? Ask and you shall receive. Yeah, so thank you. And thanks as always to Sloan for writing this case up. Saloon. Saloon. And also, if you're new here, please ignore the first five minutes of this episode. (laughs) Pretend like it didn't happen. No, it's better they know now. That's true. It is better. It is better. But we are obviously a true crime podcast. Maybe you haven't, we haven't got to that part yet, but we love the 90s. And so it's very nostalgic. Oh, yes. And conversational. So, um, you know, we've already hit you with it. If you've already switched off, then you're not even listening to this, so that doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. In other news, we have, what I'm hearing, the most banging Patreon there is out there. Yeah. Upwards of four people have said it. Yeah, at least. And, you know, there are, you could get three episodes a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a fucking lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. And ad-free. Oh yeah, all ad-free. Every level gets you ad-free there. You get um, at $3 a level ad-free bonus episode a month. You keep going up. You can get up to three episodes a week. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. And these are all like our mixtape is full cases. We got the doc jam where we cover series episode by episode docu-series. So we got a lot of stuff going on in there. You should check it out. Yeah, three episodes a week, that baby paid for itself. Show damn show did. (laughs) All right, I think all the business is out of the way. We have talked a lot about Blue's Clues, and uh, I definitely (laughs) wanted to have that on the schedule for today. So now we shall move on to McCormick Farm Murders. Well, and you know what? Honestly, if we're really thinking about it, Blue's Clues is not that different from what we're doing here. We're looking for clues. That is true. I'm just saying. There are reasons. There are reasons for sure. Okay. 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 So the McCormick family was a twisted little clan on a gigantic farm where they basically had free reign to murder at will and dispose of the evidence without leaving the comforts of home. And they would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those pesky kids. I enjoy, Terrell, do you know the reference there? No. Scooby-Doo. At the end, they're like, and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those pesky kids. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I've read a lot on this case, and I don't remember any kids. <laughs> okay, but not kids investigators. I see what you did there, Sloan. You did that just to throw me off, didn't you? Because you knew I wouldn't get well, it. Yeah, she was like, how dumb is Torella? Mm-hmm. This will get her. This ought to get her, yep. Okay, so we got a couple trigger warnings as well. Very brief mentions of suicide. Domestic violence, dismemberments. There's ghosts and ghouls and goblins, which I don't do, okay? <laughs> so, there you go. Okay. But there is yeah. like a paranormal element slightly to this case. Yes. Just ask Jack Osborne. <laughs> that was Jack Osborne, right? Like the like who I'm thinking of. Yes. How many Jack Osborne's okay. with British accents do you know? Just one. But he didn't say the McRib is back, so I... I couldn't be sure. Right. You know, he didn't say his catchphrase. So you were like, who is this person? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in this case, we're actually going to kind of start at the end and then work our way backwards. Interesting. Yeah. On December 20th, 1985, a man named Michael Rexford McCormick was arrested on outstanding warrants and for jumping bail. This fucking guy, man. He was taken from the location of his arrest in Omaha, Nebraska, back to his home state of Colorado. And on the quick Cessna flight back, Michael started talking about things that turned out to be of great interest to the police. He tells the police that he knows about some murders that may have taken place on his family farm, and he can tell them where the bodies are and who killed them. But he's going to need a deal, of course, for a lesser punishment before he says anything. And he's really just doing this out of the goodness of his heart. But while he's there, he's like, might as well. I mean, again, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So a deal is drawn up and as long as Mike is honest with them, he'll get the easier punishment. Actually, the court documents specifically say that Michael had promised to, quote, truthfully, faithfully, and fully provide accurate and verifiable information about the homicide of Herbert Donahoe Cooperate fully and freely with the state in its investigation and take and pass a polygraph to unequivocally demonstrate truthfulness and that he had not killed Donahoe. Wow. And in exchange for this information, Mike would serve only two years for any convictions that came up in the theft case and that the prosecution would not file any homicide charges for any information and bodies he provided. As long as there was no evidence that he had any part in the murders. So, Mike passes the required polygraph and tells the police a bonkers tale about his family farm, and the man he said killed multiple men that are now buried on the farm, which is his father, Thomas, who goes by Tom McCormick. Mike tells the officers that his father has murdered many men over the years and forced him to help in the disposal. Then he tells the officers that he can tell them where many of the bodies are buried, and he'll even mark the spots on the property. So Mike leads authorities to bodies in four graves on his family's property and claims that there are actually many, many more. Mm. Despite reading a bunch of articles, watching videos, listening to another podcast, and even going beyond the second page of a Google search, there is almost no information on the McCormick family outside of their crimes in general unpleasantness. There's really, not, there's really not a ton out there. I mean, it's... Thanks for summing it up. It's one of those things that it just seems like in a case like this, this should be a two-parter, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's so many people, but there's just so very little information. And then the case was like almost non-existent in investigation, just kind of, you know, sucks. Something like that, you would think, would have taken place like a hundred years ago, because you get no information from a very, very, very old case. Well, and what it reminds me of a lot is that Bell Gunnis was that her name, Bell Gunnis case. Um, she the, she was what in the like late eighteen hundreds or something, and she had a farm, and so she would write people or put ads out in the paper or whatever for. She needed help on the farm. And so she'd get people to come out there and she'd tell them they needed to bring, like, I don't know, all this money for whatever reason. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've listened to the case, but I bet somebody out there is screaming, like, oh my God, this is, that's not what it is. But anyway, these men would come out there and work for her. Some of them she would marry, some of them she would not, but she killed all of them mm-hmm. and then just took their money. So they'd bring, you know, whatever lump sum of money that they had. She would, she would be writing to them for a while and they'd kind of like, I think fall in love with her a little bit and like whatever. And then they'd come out there to help her work on this farm and she just killed all of them. And it, it's very similar to this, I think. Yeah, sounds like it. It's crazy. So we know that in 1985, when he was arrested, Michael McCormick was about 29 years old. He was married with one son and living in a trailer on his family farm. Tom McCormick was about 52. He was the current patriarch of the McCormick family and the owner and chief of the McCormick family farm. Different sources gave different measurements for the McCormick farm. Some said 2,200 acres and others said as much as 2,900 acres. So upwards of 2,200 acres. We'll just say that. That's easy, right? Sure. It was called one of the largest spreads in that county and was at one time valued at over $2 million. Darn. Yeah. That's what I thought. I was like, darn. Darn. The property was bordered on the east by the state border of Kansas and was at one time a successful functional farm. They grew wheat, corn, and soybeans, as well as raising different types of livestock. They had a feedlot and grazing land for the animals. There were many people working on the farm, but outside of these people and the family, Tom was considered fiercely antisocial and even ran people off his land. Tom's lack of social skills seemed to run in the family. I just, (laughs) the way I just said land, I don't know why, but that to me, I was like, oh, I am Southern. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how many syllables I put in land. I didn't notice it. So I am i must be just a Southern. Just a Southern. Land. Yep. Land. Yep. <laughs> well, how else do you say it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> he sold his land. <laughs> exactly. Like, tell me another way and then maybe I'll do it. But I don't see any other way here. It was said that Tom's own father was also a rage-filled man and that the family history included a lot of rumors of serial murders. Ugh. They remind me of House of a Thousand Corpses that I think it's the Firefly Ooh. family. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm getting. I'm getting that vibe from them. Crazy bastards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The stories, while variant because gossip, mostly follow the same line that Tom and likely his father would hire workers for the ranch with the main criteria being that they were transient or were generally not going to be missed. We have seen that so many times. Typically, it's with sex workers, but still. Mm -hmm. Same appeal, right? Yeah. In fact, Mike would later say that these were among the main interview questions asked by his father of the (laughs) workers. He's Like, like literally, you're sure you have, like, no family that would ever right. come looking for you, right? If you went missing, who would look for you? No mm-hmm. one? You're hired. Yeah, exactly. Like, how, when's the last time you talked to your family? 20 years ago? Great. Yeah. How much money do you possess in, on your person right now? Cool. Mm-hmm. Tom would travel from their farm to Denver, Colorado, to a men's mission to hire workers and bring them back to the farm while thoroughly vetting them to ensure that they weren't going to be missed should something happen to them. We're on a farm. You never know what made happen. It's a gamble. It's something you take your life into your own hands every day that you go to work on a farm. Well, that's true. Yeah. So this can't be helped. Exactly. And he's like, look, you understand the risks here. Okay. You could die at any moment. Mm-hmm. But what we need to know is if anybody's going to be over here being a pest, asking where the hell you, you went, you know? Exactly. So Tom would basically hold these people hostage by not paying them, but forever promising that they would be getting their money any day now. The men who were previously homeless and or addicted to drugs and or alcohol were being provided a place to live and food. So while they weren't getting their wages, they weren't really in a position to complain. And it was also said that Tom kept these men supplied with the drugs and alcohol that they needed to make them completely dependent on him. That, to me, kind of sounds like what Joe Exotic was doing at his, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah. He was like, you can go through the garbage to get food, but like, I'm I'm giving you better than you had. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wh- what else are you going to do? hmm Yeah. The men that were brought to the farm to work were housed in workers' quarters at the farm that was described as like a frat house. Each man got his own room, and then the bathroom, kitchen, and living area were all shared. Not only that, but according to the Colored Red podcast and the book Michael by Tracy Beach, there was also a cook that was there specifically to cook for these men. For many of these men, this was likely the best living situation that they could have found or asked for. Tom's philosophy, according to Mike, was that he'd keep the men on the hook without paying them for as long as he could. Then, if or when a man got frustrated was not being paid and brought their frustrations to Tom, he would murder them. This kept him from ever having to pay them and subsequently saving Tom money. Hashtag thrifty. I mean, look, when you're running a business, overhead costs can be through the roof. I say it's outside the box. Sure, it is. But it's definitely a great business model to to look into if you're just looking to cut down costs. I don't sure. see the problem here. Sure. I just cannot fathom how somebody can be like, well, I don't know. I I just, I never can understand how anybody can look at a human being and not think that they're as important as any other human being. Like, I just don't yeah. understand it at all. But to go to a men's mission where these people genuinely need help, how much hope does that give them to be like, hey, I'm going to give you a job and a place to live and something to eat, you know, mm-hmm. every day. like. So much hope, and to use their addictions and their, you know, that they're being on hard times, their position in life at that moment against them, just fucking hateful. And then, and then on top of that, to be like, well, you've worked really hard, but I'm not going to pay you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you fucking have the nerve to complain about it, I will murder you. Yeah, exactly. That is so messed up because <sighs> it's not like, all of a sudden they decided that they wanted to get more than they were offered no there was a contract a verbal contract in place mhm yeah well and just the fact that i think that these people like tom and probably michael i mean if you're growing up under somebody like that you cannot say i mean maybe it was something that he you know just learned and there really wasn't much hope for him but there's no way that he's not participating in some of this stuff likely willingly. I mean, Michael was a fucked up dude too. So, you know, I I don't know, but just I think they genuinely were like I mean, what? Like what? kept costs down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed to do? I I needed to cut some costs. Mhm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like whatever. It's insane. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it's just I My mind can't understand it. But that's the good thing, I think, right? Is that since we can't understand it, that means that we're not serial killers. Yay. Yeah, exactly. It's the only proof that I've gotten about you. Oh, I don't know where you are most of the time. I can't figure out what you're doing in your free time. You know what I mean? Well, that's true. And I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) So then in the 1980s, the farm fell into financial trouble. Apparently hiring workers you don't pay and then murdering them was not quite the money-saving endeavor Tom thought it would be. The family had to sell off massive chunks of their property, and the feedlot took a hit and closed. In 1981, Tom had to file for bankruptcy. In order to try and recoup their money and get back on their feet, the McCormicks looked into new avenues of earning money. They started shipping coal and even uranium. And logically, their next thoughts turned to stolen cars and a chop shop as a side hustle. The family began using their farm hands to help them steal cars and trucks. They were stealing the cars, stripping them down to pieces, and selling off the parts. And that is how Herbert Donahoe came into the McCormick's reach. All right, so on August 30th, 1983, 60-year-old semi-truck driver Herbert, who went by Bert Donahoe, was supposed to meet a friend of his at a truck stop in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, but he never showed. He was supposed to have called his wife, but he didn't call her or come to Caldwell, Idaho. He wasn't anywhere he was supposed to be, so authorities were alerted by his family, and they began to search for Donahoe or his truck. They wouldn't get any information about either until the next year, but before that, in January of 1984, authorities in the area began to hear whispers about Mike McCormick and his connection to a car theft ring. However, the state police didn't dig any further into these tips. And why should they? They're busy. <laughs> okay. So before you get on their fucking case, please do remember it could have been 4.15 p.m. Okay. 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 That's, that's all I have to say. <laughs> the Fort Morgan District Attorney Doyle Johns. I hope none of you listening's name is Doyle because just... Oh, no. Who? Oh, like um, Biodome. Oh. Stephen Baldwin's <laughs> character's name is Doyle. Fitting though, right? Yeah, even specifically asked the Colorado Bureau of Investigations to help look into information he'd learned, pointing to the McCormick's involvement in a, quote, stolen car ring and the alleged involvement of peace officers in criminal activities in the Burlington area. Records would show that no witnesses were questioned in regards to this. Agents who were with the Bureau at the time would later say that the allegations were unfounded and, quote, blown out of proportion. A CBI director who was not with the CBI at the time, Neil Maloney, said of Doyle John's letter that, quote, if there was a request from a district attorney, then it was clearly within our responsibility under the statute of investigation. But that didn't change the fact that at the time, they did Ah, bupkis. Oh, bupkis is my favorite she put word. She favorite word in. I love Look it. her. Thanks, I know. Sloan. I also want to say that Neil Maloney was like, baloney! Yeah, they actually called him baloney Maloney. <laughs> God, that would be amazing. That was his nickname. they were like all Baloney Maloney over there. <laughs> I do think that it's a little, uh it's a little wordy. There's a lot of syllables in that, but I do love it. Mm-hmm. I've been terrified every time I've tried to get it out of my mouth that I was going to fuck it up, but Bologna, I actually did it. Yeah, it's yeah, hard, isn't it? Yeah. It is. I think you think about it too much, but you did a great job. I'm very proud. Oh, oh my god, thank you. <laughs> all right. So in July of 1984, Donahoe's truck turned up. Well. Part of it turned out. Was it kind of like Chandler's hat, stripped and sold for parts? (sighs) Probably. Mm -hmm. During a routine inspection of a semi-truck in Roseburg, Oregon, the truck was found to have altered serial numbers, and the new owner was asked about his purchase of this questionable truck. The man told police he bought the semi in Phoenix, Arizona, back in December of 1983, and their investigation would lead to the name Michael McCormick. There was still no information on Donahoe to say whether he was alive or dead and nothing to connect Mike to him other than the truck. But Mike at this point is now definitely a person of interest in the chop shop activities and car thefts. And now he's been linked to this truck as well. Mm. In January of 1985, a grand jury was convened to determine if Michael McCormick should be charged with theft and other felonies. Mike's alleged crimes had occurred throughout multiple counties in Colorado and in March of 1985, the assistant district attorney, Francis Oldham, presented evidence that proved Mike had been involved in the theft and sale of various motor vehicles. In June of 1985, the grand jury indicted Mike on 14 counts with five of them being related to the theft of Burt Donahoe's truck and trailer. There was still no evidence that Mike was involved in in the disappearance and suspected murder of Donahoe. Mike was arrested on June 24th, 1985, and the trial was set for April of 1986. He was given a bond for the low, low price of $1 million, which he posted. Then Mike immediately went on the lam. I just don't like, the farm is in like financial room. I don't know where he got this million dollars to post. Like they were really surprised that he would be able to post that. Yeah, I mean, I'm shocked too. And who, yeah, I, I can't see a bail bondsman, bail bondsman being like, yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Can you even get a bail bondsman for like, I'm sure you can, that sum of money, but still. Yeah, I don't know. And he immediately flees, immediately mm-hmm. flees. Like, duh. They yeah, should just wait. Okay. Just wait. <sighs> just do you wait in re. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he was fairly quickly captured when he attempted to stiff a California hotel. In his attempt to avoid paying his bill, Mike was arrested and after they realized he had warrants, he was extradited back to Colorado. Back in Colorado, Mike was once again given the opportunity to post bail for another cool million. Why? And And how did he post it again? Once again. Once again. He posted the bail and then he pulled an Irish goodbye and he was like Patrick Swayze sings, he's like the wind. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, he's gone to ever. Gone to ever. Yeah. So on December 20th, a tip was called in that led officers to Mike in Omaha, Nebraska. Mike was given, oh God damn it. Mike was going by the name Bill Kelly and Bill had checked himself into a Best Western. Since it's the 80s, the hotel ran the credit cards later that day and discovered that Bill's was stolen. Once it was determined that Bill was trying to Kevin McAllister, <laughs> the Best Western, the manager tried to boot him out. But Billy wasn't leaving without a fight and had barricaded himself in his room and threatened to kill anyone who tried to come in. The manager, who 100% did not get paid enough for that shit, called the police who surrounded the three-star hotel and breached the door to Bill's room. Once inside, they were greeted with the sight of a 29-year-old man in his boxers trying to climb out of the window. Bill, a.k.a. Mike, a.k.a. Kevin McAllister, had a towel wrapped around his hand, concealing a gun, which he then put in his mouth. For the next six hours, police and a pastor would try and talk this man quite literally off the edge. Once the situation was under control, the police arrested him and discovered his real name was Michael McCormick and that he had multiple felony charges against him and had skipped bail twice. And doesn't it feel at this point that should he be convicted with anything, he'd maybe be in jail for like a little while, like a while? No, I don't see the problem here. I say... Put him in there for about 24 hours. That, should, that ought to teach him the lesson. Oh, okay. All right. So maybe I'm just... All right. Okay, no, well. I think that he should, he should go in the chokey, and you should lock the door and throw away the key. Mm. Well, shit. You're tough. Well, I mean, come on. Can yeah. you skip and bail that many times, like one after the other? He's like, listen, guys, I promise. I promise. Promise look, I won't do it again. Last time. Yeah, last time. That was a whoops. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like, I've seen the error of my ways. People make mistakes. Totally gonna stick around this time. And then they turn around and he's got his fingers crossed and he's like, oh, would you look at that? Oh my gosh. He's still laughing. at Well, not anymore. But he, he was still laughing about that. <gasps> I know. Whatever. Don't speak ill of the dead. So anyway, it was the holidays. So Mike was placed in a psychiatric ward in an Omaha hospital. And after the holidays were over, he would be transported back to Colorado again. Once the authorities had rung in the new year, Mike was ushered into a little Cessna plane with the pilot and at least one officer. On the flight back to Colorado, Mike starts talking and sharing a family history. This might sound familiar if you go back to the very beginning. Mm. I don't think we have time for Hillary, but she would be coming right here. Oh, she would, yep. Once back in his home state, Mike told investigators that he would tell them not only where Burt Donahoe's body was, but also where there were more bodies and who killed them if they could promise him some leniency with his sentencing. Prosecutors struck the deal and said that he'd get two years for every body he led them to if he told them the absolute truth and they didn't find any evidence that he was involved in the murders. That is giving him a lot of faith for somebody who has literally jumped bail twice in the last five days. Like, Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, listen, if you promise mm-hmm. that you do will you be truthful promise? and honest, yes. And no one can go back on a pinky promise. No, because that's what they, they didn't do that before. They probably, oh, I don't think they pinky the promised problem. before and that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? Shame on them for not asking him to pinky promise. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's on them. Mm -hmm. I know. I know. Mike agreed. And on January 23rd, 1986, he told the investigators that his father, Tom McCormick, was the murderer of Burt Donahoe, as well as numerous other men who were now buried at the McCormick farm. Mike told them that his dad had murdered other men over disputes on the farm and that he'd known where the bodies were buried. According to Mike Gallagher, the now-retired detective from the case, Mike McCormick told them during the interrogation that nobody scares me more than my father because I've seen him kill. Mike told the stories of how Burt Donahoe died and would later reveal the details about the murder of at least three more men. He told them that he and his dad wanted Burt Donahoe's truck, so his dad bashed him over the head with a sledgehammer, and they buried him about 100 miles away from their farm. On January 30th, 1986, Mike took the police to Donahoe's remains, but not before taunting them with inaccurate directions and claiming memory lapses for over a week. How did this not totally invalidate his deal that he'd already made, knowing that he's purposefully leading them on a wild goose chase? Well, there there were conditions for his deal. So it's like, if he's going to go back on that and not follow through, then he needs to be punished. Needs exactly. to be taken away. Yeah. One day, Mike had taken the officers to the area where he said Donahoe's body was buried. He told them a few places, but none were right. Finally, one of the officers was done with Mike's bullshit. He got right in Mike's face and demanded that he quit jerking them around. Mike said, fine, give me the shovel and I'll show you. They did, and while they kept their guns pointed at him, Mike began digging just feet from where they'd been standing. He hadn't dug very deep at all before he uncovered clothing. And that's also like such a fuck you because he had like led them all around, but he knew that like where they were all standing was where the body was. And he's like, go way over there, go way over there, go way over there. Mm -hmm. And like the whole time he's like, it's right here. I don't know, such a jerk. Now that they'd found the remains of Burt Donahoe, Mike took the police to the farm and he was given a dozen wooden stakes to mark the locations where he believed other bodies were buried. The oldest of the bodies they found was over a decade old. Each grave was about 50 yards from each other and only about two to three feet deep. First, they found the body of James who went by Jim Irvin. Plants. Plants was either the cook or foreman. There's differing information in different reports for the ranch. He broke into Mike's trailer to steal from him but was caught by Mike. Mike claims that he called dear old dad who took care of the thief. Hmm. That like just so doesn't sound like true. <laughs> then the body of James, who also went by Jim Perry Sinclair, a ranch hand that Mike says Tom shot in the head with a 357 Magnum after they got in a fight over alcohol. And finally, the remains of Robert Lee Sowarsh. Sowarsh's body was one that, upon autopsy, indicated that there might be two murderers. He'd been shot in the head with a shotgun But he also had five other gunshot wounds from a pistol in his gut. The implication would be, you know, that the murderer doesn't often switch weapons mid-attack. So we've got two different weapons, likely two different shooters. Mm -hmm. So Arsh was a longtime ranch hand and driver for the McCormicks and knew Tom kept at least $25,000 on the ranch. He basically decided that if Tom McCormick wasn't going to pay him, he'd withdraw the money on his own. Mike tells the story that Soarsh's death was far from fast. He tells law enforcement that it all started about 1 a.m. when he came out of his trailer to find Tom chasing Soarsh. Tom told Mike to catch him, and the two McCormick men chased him uh, to the trees where he was caught and then tied up by Tom. Mike claims that he just went about his daily duties and then went to his parents' house for dinner. You know, because like regular things. While you'd think these pleasant folks would have had a lovely mealtime conversation about their day and make jokes, you'd be wrong. Not only were they unpleasant, they ate in almost complete silence. (sighs) Every single day. Mike said that this night their silence was interrupted when there was a thumping that kept happening over and over throughout dinner. And then Tom starts screaming at his wife, Sylvia, that this is all her fault. There are rumors that... Tom may have thought that Sylvia had been sleeping with Soarsh. Like, there are some rumors that either they were having an affair or at the very least that Tom perceived that they were. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, this guy was so like fly off the handle, scary. I mean, you eat in complete silence around him. I don't know. I just don't know that. Yeah, ticking time bomb. Yeah, and like to be married to somebody like that, it seems like you wouldn't want to anger him you know like you wouldn't want to rock the boat but i mean there's no evidence either way it's just we know that he definitely thought it was happening Mm -hmm. after dinner mike says his dad told him to meet him in the cellar once down there mike had learned what was making the thumping that he'd heard at dinner it was so harsh and he had duct tape on his mouth and he was tied up he'd been throwing himself up against the wall the father and son took Soarsh to the barn and along the way, they could hear Leonard Skinnerd blaring from the worker housing, which is perfect for covering screams. Mm. Tom tied fencing wire around Soarsh's ankles and then hoisted him up on a hook. And because fencing wire is basically like a razor, it immediately dug deep into his ankles down to the bones. His oh foot God. was literally almost amputated, which would later be seen when his remains were found. I mean, that is such a painful way to go. Yeah, that is so, ugh, so awful. And then Mike says at this point, Tom is absolutely tickled pink with himself and living his absolute best life. This reminds me of the Snowtown murders. hmm Like just having the best time. Bunting like so freaking proud of himself. Uh-huh, yeah. He began beating on so harsh, like a punching bag and whatever else he wanted. But Mike said that he didn't see any of this because he'd stepped outside for a joint, of course. He's never around when, you know. Yeah, when the shit hits the fan. Yeah. And then he hears a gunshot. So Tom came out of the barn and retrieved Mike, and Mike tells police that there was so much blood and Soarsh's body was still hanging upside down with a tarp on the ground beneath him. Even more disturbing was the wheelbarrow sitting nearby that was full, you guys, Mm -mm. if you're eating, you gotta stop, full of Soarsh's skin. Might claim that Tom skinned Soarsh and then, like a cherry on the top of a sundae, placed Soarsh's. Don't say that. I don't even. What do we even want to say? I guess. I guess we'll go anatomical. His testicles. Mm. I mean, why? Just sat them on top. Mm-mm. It was never revealed if Soarsh was alive or dead when he was skinned. What the fuck? That is- I cannot, I cannot. Disturbing gut beyond words. Yeah. So he finds, just happens upon this, of course. He has nothing to do with that. So Mike, you know, finds all this and now it's his job to dismember Soarsh's body and wrap it in the tarp so that they could load the parts into the backhoe. While Mike was doing his part, Tom went looking for the perfect place to bury the remains. And then Tom would move the body while Mike went to gather all of Soarsh's things from his room at the worker's house. Father and son buried the remains of Robert Soarsh behind Mike's trailer. They dumped the body parts in the hole, but they got the tarp back out because look, and I get it, you don't want to like basically waste a perfectly good tarp. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you've got a tarp that's doing its job, that's hard to find and they're like upwards of at least twenty or thirty dollars, depending on the size. Sure. I mean, and you can hose that off, no problems. Oh, exactly. That's what they're... Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, why would you just throw that away? It's ridiculous. hmm This is a fucking guy. They dropped all of Soarsha's possessions and covered it all with dirt. When his grave was revealed, there was still wire around his ankles, which were, at that point, just bones. Mike later claimed that he frequently thought about the bodies throughout the years. He also recalls that his wife had to move her garden and he had to explain why. Unfortunately, the investigators and Mike were unable to locate any other graves. According to the Clappers, who were the new owners of the property, Mike McCormick told them that they'd made so many changes that he couldn't get his bearings to find the graves. However, despite digging with backhoes and basically churning up the land, no further remains were located and the search was called off when their funding dried up. There were stories of other murders committed for similar reasons. One story was that a cook stole a briefcase and then left in a car that belonged to the McCormicks. He was chased down by the men of the family. Tom hopped into the small Cessna plane, casual, he owned, and Mike and John were in cars, all had radio communication to each other, and they located and then murdered the cook. Like, another thing that I don't believe is all of it, really, because what they're saying is, this is very Eileen Warnos. Okay, yeah, I murdered like a shit ton of people, but they all were attacking me. They all Mm -hmm. were doing something to me. They all were, you know, like this guy was gonna steal from me. This guy was, you know, came in and tried to attack me. This guy, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. The fact is the guy said, hey, remember how you like said you were gonna pay me like a year ago? I don't know if you forgot about that. And he was like, that's it. He's like the (laughs) queen from... Alice in Wonderland, off mm. with her. Hey, like, <laughs> just none of this shit happened. I just, I'm so well, no, none of it happened. And it's just amazing to me how somebody can have the foresight to know that it's going to get that bad that you have to go ahead and like preemptively like defend yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That is just ridiculous. And you know why that is so crazy to think about? Because it didn't fucking happen. Yeah, exactly. Like, and why investigators are just like, Mary, yeah, that sounds about right. Like, okay, yeah. but you had nothing to do with it. I mean, he just forced you at the end and, you know, whatever. Two years per body, no big deal. Like, now remember you, Pinky promised. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Now, what are we up to here? Four bodies. So that should be eight years plus all of his chop shop shit. Jim, Jim, Burt, and so are Yes. Yeah. So just, you know, just put a pin in that mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the math. Yes. Another story was of a man that was strangled for stealing from Mike and then was placed in the farm's cesspool. Do you know what a cesspool is? No. I didn't know what it was either. And I listened to that Colored Red podcast and she mm-hmm. explained it. And it's horrific. It's, um, I guess, where all of the other stuff that is remaining from animals that you slaughter. Oh, Organs, blood, skin, stuff like that—it just all goes into this big hole. Ugh. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna barf. I don't know what, why, but like, and not that, not that dismembering bodies is not horrific; it absolutely is. But for some reason, to hear that unsettled my tummy (laughs) a lot. I'm just like, yeah. Like, I don't know. My brother-in-law has started. Like, they are now. They have cows and they're butchering their own cows, which, you know, okay, fine. But when he was telling us about it, I I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. Like, I think, uh, I think I forgot that I forgot something in another room. I was just like, well, I cannot talk about this. And Andrew was like, how? Like what? You do a true crime podcast. I'm like, I know, dude. I just, I don't know. It's weird. I don't understand it, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's what accessible is. Yeah. When these men would disappear, the other workers just tended to believe that they just left, and they were either oblivious or in serious denial about what was going on on that farm. I feel like probably more on the oblivious side because if you know that people are actively getting murdered around you, wouldn't you like run off? I would. So they wouldn't want to stay there. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah that that makes more sense to me. Exactly. Like why they would have stayed if it was just oblivious because if they did know well I mean the same thing I guess for oblivious but it just kind of reminds me of like what I would imagine little farm animals would be like it's like well, wait where did Aww. where did Steve go? Yeah. Have no idea. It yeah. breaks my heart. But I'm like sorry. also after like when people just kind of like okay stop being there or whatever I wonder, too, if the people were like, well, you know, the McCormicks, well, they were stealing from Mm -hmm. us. So, you know, keep yourself in line. Like, maybe they were like, well, as long as I don't steal from them, everything's going to be okay. Or as long as I don't walk the boat. Maybe. I don't know. It's awful. But just the hold they had on these people anyway, it's just awful. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Keeping them on drugs and everything. Because of his claims that his father was the murderer, Tom McCormick was arrested in 1986 as well, and in March, Mike testified at the preliminary hearing against his dad, Tom. However, Mike then starts to change his story. Surprise! <laughs> During interviews with law enforcement in April and May, Mike's stories started to reveal a lot of inconsistencies. Hmm. His new stories even involved his brother and wife in the murder of Burt Donahoe. It also became apparent that he withheld a fair amount of information during his previous statements. He also started to say that he had been the one to kill Burt Donahoe and gave more details. Mike would tell the police that he lured Donahoe back to the ranch somehow and that when he had him in his trailer, he showed him to the garage. Once on the steps, he used a sledgehammer to cave in Donahoe's skull. Donahoe collapsed to the garage floor and Mike wrapped him in a sleeping bag to stop the blood from spreading further. While he was cleaning up, Mike said he heard Donahoe moaning, so he slit his throat. Mike said he pushed the body wrapped in the sleeping bag into the corner and then went about covering up the blood stains on the garage floor. He decided that the best plan was to paint all over it with gray paint. But while Mike is painting the floor, his wife Kathy gets home and she opens the garage door And she's like, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you painting the fucking floor, dude? And he's like, oh my God, you know what? The stupidest fucking thing. I spilled a bunch of red paint all over the floor. And so I am now covering the red paint with the gray paint, (laughs) you know, because red paint just looks stupid, don't you think? And she's like... (laughs) Well, especially in the way that it was spilled, just kind of splattered everywhere. Yeah, just splattered. So she's like, I guess we better call you Butterfingers and just moved on about her day. I mean, like like, that makes sense to me. Okay. mm -hmm, She believed him. And his wife was interviewed and even let the detectives remove the stairs to the garage for evidence. Like, obviously at the time, she's like, kind of weird, but... I don't know enough about it to dispute it, you know? And then Mm. later after all this, she's like, oh, shit. Can you imagine? I just cannot. Yeah. Yep. So because he was now a pretty unreliable witness and there was no evidence to prove that Tom was the true murderer of any of these men, Tom was released without any convictions. Michael, however, had negated his plea agreement. The agreement specifically stated that Mike had to be truthful and that if they found that if he wasn't, the deal could be taken back. That was revoked on, in June of 1986. And Michael went on trial for the theft charges as well as murder charges of Burt Donahoe. The other three men found would never result in charges. I do not understand that. Like, I don't either. You've found other bodies that he led you to, that he led you to. And we've got wire around the ankles. Like, these are bodies that have not been natural deaths. And buried on the property, which Mm -hmm. is still a crime for not reporting a dead body, right? Mm -hmm. How is he not at the very least charged with like desecrating a corpse or, you know, I know that that's a different charge everywhere, but like, you know, not disposing of a body or notifying authorities or whatever at the Mm -hmm. very least, because he, he led them, like you said, he led them right there. Like, I just Mm -hmm. don't. It's ridiculous. The murder charges against Tom were officially dropped on July 9th, and on the 17th, Mike and his defense team filed motions that the plea agreement was not breached. The judge denied that motion for obvious reasons, and the trial began August 12th, 1986. Why he decided to fight that is just ridiculous, because it's like the most cut and dry, black and white, you breach this fucking contract, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Michael McCormick was found guilty in June of 1987 for the murder of Burt Donahoe. He was sentenced to life as well as four years for kidnapping and 22 years for the charges regarding his jumping bail, all to run consecutively to the sentence for the theft charges, which was originally set at 45 years for five counts of theft, three counts of theft by receiving, three counts of unlawful possession of altered automobile parts, two counts of fraud by check, one count of first degree aggravated motor vehicle theft, and one count of conspiracy to possess cocaine with the intent to distribute. 45 years. Now, this guy needs to be put away for life because of all the murdery things. 45 years for fucking car theft and like, you know, chop, chop, chopping him up. Like, <laughs> I just feel surprised. <laughs> Maybe. All right, yeah. I don't know the right word, but there's so many cases we see where people are murdered and they're like, okay, well, we get six years for that. Yeah. I don't know. Just, yeah, exactly. So in theory, Mike was not leaving prison until he was wheeled out in a body bag. However, Mike and his appellate attorneys filed appeals that claimed that his trial lawyer had been ineffective and his conviction was overturned. His appellate attorney was quoted as saying, no one believes he was treated fairly in this process. Now, I think that everyone here can argue that no one did or just Mike didn't. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Michael Rexford McCormick was once again a free man on March 21st, 2006, but prosecutors immediately refiled charges against him. With these new charges, Mike pleaded guilty to second degree murder, but was given a sentence of time served 18 years. During Mike's time in prison, his father, Tom, had died in November 1997. So he was never convicted of any murders or of any other crimes, which I think would be probably good for Mike because Tom is a loose cannon and Mike damn near tried to put him in jail. So I'm sure Tom was like, "Your next motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, probably just for the best. Yes. Yeah. Once Mike was fully free, he left his wife, Kathy, who had stayed with him through all the trials and things. Yeah, he gets out of jail and then he's like, see you later, bitch. Like, thanks for the memories. Exactly. He never divorced her. He just fucking left her. Like, are you serious? I can't believe she stayed. I know. So Mike goes by, starts going by Rex, and he even started dating and branching out on new business endeavors. Mike or Rex and some friends slash business partners began buying foreclosed houses that they could flip and resell. One of his partners was 38-year-old Michelle Lee Thompson Larimer. Michelle and Mike had been business partners, but it was reported in many places that they also had a romantic relationship as well. Michelle had a four-year-old son with another man and was not dating Mike in 2010. Mike had become kind of obsessed with Michelle and told his brother about it when he stayed with him on April 4th, 2010. He also admitted to John that he was suicidal at this time. Mike was probably feeling like the walls were closing in around him. Retired detective Linda Holloway, who now worked part-time helping with cold cases, had started looking into Mike's case again in 2008. Holloway said, since there's no statute of limitations on homicide, we thought maybe the case could be rejuvenated and charges could be used against the responsible parties. She attempted to procure funds to start digging for remains again and getting other agencies involved like NecroSearch. NecroSearch is a nonprofit organization that frequently helps law enforcement look for possible grave sites. However, they require that they be reimbursed for travel expenses like hotel food, etc., Holloway was able to get a number of volunteers that were offering their services, such as geologists and forensic anthropologists. Holloway hadn't received the funding yet, but she was definitely working the case with fervor, which could eventually lead to Mike being sent back to prison. She feels that if they could continue digging, they would uncover more victims as well as obtain enough evidence to prove that there were two murderers. Holloway gathered up 15 boxes of evidence and had it all computerized and digitized and was poring over the evidence. On top of this, Mike's business relationship with Michelle and partners was strained, as was their business in general. Mike wasn't doing great, and now he's told his brother John that he's obsessed with this woman and he, that he can't have any suicidal. At 3 a.m. the next morning, so this is April 7th, 2010, Mike leaves John's house and heads to Granby where he picked up Michelle. Mike had convinced Michelle to come with him to Granby Ranch where they and some other acquaintances had homes that they'd bought to flip. Mike seemingly allowed Michelle to make a phone call because she was able to call her roommate, who was also named Michelle, and tell her that she had been kidnapped. Michelle told her roommate to tell her mother that she loved her and to pick up her son. During this call, she was also able to tell her roommate who had taken her, but not where they were. At about 2 p.m. on Wednesday, April 7th, Michelle's roommate calls the police. Police found Michelle's car at a gas station in Parker. They also looked up car registration information for Mike's vehicles. It turned out that Mike had not changed the address, and the police went to an address in Saddlehorn Court in Granby Ranch. However, there was no one at that house, so the police began canvassing the neighborhood and located one of Mike's cars at 109 Timber Court. The police from Granby and a SWAT team swarmed the house and made numerous attempts to contact him or Michelle. Neither were answering their cell phones, and the police weren't getting any answers talking through the doors or the windows. They eventually decided that if they could make a hole in the window or a wall <gasps> and insert a phone that they could use to contact Mike and negotiate. Yeah, I'm the sorry. Wall, eh? That's all I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> you got to cut a hole in there and then you drop the, what was it? Uh, what did he drop a on the A teeny tiny wire? bird with, oh, uh, that was what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. D wanted to put a teeny tiny bird with a little string on his legs. I mean, again, you miss 100% of the shots you don't <laughs> take. I just love that they were like, what we're going to have to do to this house is we're going to have to cut a hole in the wall. They're going to have to shove a phone in there and wait. <laughs> yeah, what's, okay, what size is this phone? Like, I don't know. I guess it's two thousand. It's a pay phone. Oh, okay. So they were like, we need- Sizable hole, yes. Yeah, we're going to need some cement, a block. Like, it's going to be a whole thing. hmm But after they'd done that, police heard a single oh, gunshot. Well, what? I'm so sorry, I- just was thinking he's also going to need change. Oh, shit. That's mm-hmm. the thing. hmm Because nobody carries change on him, you know, anymore. anymore. I mean, maybe no. then, but two quarters, I don't know. I know. I don't know. And Depending on how long you talk for, you're going to need more quarters. Well, that's true. That's very true. Anyway. So after they'd done this, police hear a single gunshot at 521 a.m. on Thursday, April 8th, 2012. They'd made entry into the house and they found 38-year-old Michelle Lee Thompson Larimer and 53-year-old Michael Rexford McCormick both dead from single gunshots to their heads. Michelle had been killed many hours ago and Mike had shot himself with that single shot that the police heard. The batteries had been removed from both of their cell phones explaining why they never answered. Even though both Tom and Mike were now dead, Linda Holloway did not stop. With no one coming forward asking about missing loved ones and because so many of the McCormick's victims were homeless, transient, undocumented, et cetera, no one was reporting them missing, exactly why Tom had chosen these men. Even Plants, Sowash, and Sinclair weren't reported. Mike's tattletelling is the only reason we know about any of them, which I can relate to because Torella found my kindergarten <laughs> report card and it said that I needed to work on my tattletaling. Mm-hmm. But I'll say this right now, Miss, oh my god, I totally forgot her name, Haley. Yeah, Miss Haley, still tattletaling. Okay, so I think she knew that. Yeah, she's like she ain't gonna fix it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there are likely even more bodies that have been have not been found and identified. The clappers even said every once in a while the plow will dig something up, like a shoelace or a piece of clothing. Linda Holloway used victim assistance funds to have Jim Plants, Robert Sowash. Robert Soarsh and Jim Sinclair cremated and returned to their loved ones. When she contacted the family of Jim Plants, she found out that they had never even been told that his body was found until she contacted them. Plants' sister had died just two months before the family received this information. Like, why? Why did you not? You knew who he was. Why not? I have no idea. Couldn't be bothered by it, apparently. Mm Mm-hmm. Jim Sinclair's sister, Pamela Nail, had requested to have his body released to her back in 1986, but was denied. She was told that they had to retain the body for study, according to her husband, Lonnie Nail. He spoke for her because she had died four years before Holloway reached out. Many of the people who were originally involved in the case are retired or dead, but Linda Holloway continues to push forward. She has the support of the clappers who want the bodies and remains found so they can be returned to their families. District Attorney Robert Watson, who was also on the team, stated, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. If there are victims out there, we need to recover them and return the bodies to their families. Okay. So while the crime part of the McCormick Farm is over, there are now a whole new set of activities taking place according to the new owners. Since the farm was bought by Chuck and Leslie Clapper in 1985, they have experienced numerous paranormal events. It would make sense that the land would be haunted with all the horrible things that took place there. And the people whose bodies have still never been found. Not to mention the fact that Tom McCormick was just vile enough to be the kind of person who would haunt people. Hmm. I mean, he was a mondo dick, you know? Yeah. So I went not doubt he was like, when I die, I'm gonna haunt all these people. Yeah, that would give him so much pleasure. I know. The clappers report pretty much every type of paranormal event there could be. Apparitions, being touched, hearing voices, seeing glowing eyes watching them, footsteps and other noises, feeling ill, cold spots, etc. Uh-uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Why have they it. not moved? I don't know. They won't stay there after dark. Just get out of there. Like, I know. I just- It's believed that there have been about 72 bodies buried on the land, and the Clappers, along with paranormal investigators, believe that the apparitions and voices are those of the victims, but others appear to be Tom McCormick. In 1998, the original McCormick home burned to the ground after being struck by lightning, and the Clappers built a new home on another part of the property. But before the house burned down, they said that their dog would stand at the top of the basement stairs and growl and bark, and he refused to go into the basement that. Eh, eh. Yeah, that was like the best thing that the world could ever done for them is burn that house down for them. I know. Mrs. Clapper has reported feeling someone pressed down on her bed as though they're sitting down, but there's no one there. Their son also reported hearing someone following behind him as well as a time when he and his cousin saw an angry old man just standing and staring at them. They've all seen this angry old mm-hmm. man, right? That's what I've gathered, Yeah. Yuck, yuck. I don't like this. I'm I'm home by myself. It's the middle of the day, but I just, I don't <laughs> like this. Listen to that sweet little bird just having the best day of his life. Like, don't. Yeah, but what about the man in my walls? True. What's he doing? I don't, I never know what he's doing in it's there. It's like a, a human-sized raccoon in there. Yeah, basically. They later saw a picture of Tom McCormick and identified him as the man they saw staring at them. Hmm. Yuck. In the old shop, there are holes in the corrugated metal walls consistent with bullet holes and a hook hanging from one of the steel beams across the ceiling. On the episode of Portal to Hell with Jack fucking Osborne, like what we talked about, the McRib is back, Mm -hmm. a psychic was brought to the property who they claimed to have given no information about the property or the McCormicks. This psychic said that whoever he was feeling had terrible stomach pains. He claimed that he was feeling these stomach pains. Leslie Clapper later told Jack Osborne and the crew that she had actually been digging through old papers and stuff and had come across prescriptions for Mike McCormick for a medication that was used for stomach issues. The crew of the show spent a few nights investigating the paranormal reports and in the show, they often do that. Oh my God, did you hear that thing? But mm-hmm. whatever they were oh my hearing. God. I don't know what was that. Remember a little girl who farts and blames it on the ghost? Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what was that. Yeah, but like n- you can't hear it. Like they can hear it, I guess, but like you as the viewer cannot hear anything. Well, no, and there's one part where the other host, she feels somebody poking her back and you can see like in the moment she's like <gasps> and she jumps and turns and then she's trying to figure it out and she's like, "No, I felt it." But that's how those shows all are. They're like, "Oh my god, just trust me. I totally experienced this. You can't know it, but I totally did." Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like It reminds me, what was that one? I I, I always forget. Was it uh, Grave Encounters or whatever? I love that movie. It's a really good movie, but they... I can't believe you watched it. I know. I can never watch it again, but... And I honestly can't think about it too much, but... The guy that they bring in who is the psychic or whatever, I mean, you know, on the show, they're like, he has no prior knowledge of this building and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, off screen, they're like, okay, so this is what's happening and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, and you're going to say this and we're going to say that. Like, it's all totally set up. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just shows like this. Yes. Like, I feel like they're bullshit. And simultaneously, I'm scared out of my fucking mind. (laughs) Because I will tell you what, I do believe in ghosts. I do too. In I just don't believe in these shows. Like, no, they're well, set up. I mean, the odds are because I believe in them, but I don't think that, I mean, the amount of times that I've experienced anything that's kind of creepy or eerie in my life is very rare. I'm sure if I went to more places that had like high paranormal activity, probably would be more. But the odds of you getting something huge on camera Every Mm -hmm. time they record, it's just slim to none. It's just crazy. Yeah, it really is. And as Miss KB would say, ghosts can't hurt you. They can make you hurt yourself. Yes, they can. So just remember that. And to this day, there has still been no further remains found as far as we can find. But at least Mike and Tom can't hurt anyone anymore. I mean, that's it. Yeah, that's it. It's pretty wild. I mean, there's not a lot of serial killer father and son duos. No. I would think. It's like that show Killer Siblings and I'm like, how many siblings kill together? That's just so crazy to have a whole series on it. I know. Yeah. It's really weird. hmm But, I mean, I guess, you know, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and True. I think that they they used killing as a means to an end, you know? Like, yeah, oh, well, I'm gonna save money. That's kind of a double... Oh, like no pun intended. Yeah, it really is. But like, you know, they're just like, okay, well, I'm going to save money this way or the, I don't want to pay this person or whatever. It's it's always for gain of some sort on their end. And I think they really justified to themselves. I don't know. And maybe Michael believed that all these people were doing something to them and they really deserved it. I mean, it's just maybe insane. It's not the same, but... I am very intrigued and interested in World War II and the Holocaust and things like that. And for a lot of people, and it's not right, it does not make it right, not one little bit, but a mm-hmm. lot of people were kind of convinced or what's the right word? Like programmed or conditioned mm-hmm. to believe that certain people, because of who they are, are lower mm-hmm. than dogs even. Like mm-hmm. they they are not on the same level as anybody else's so right yeah yeah i mean that's a very right but cult like yeah i mean that's what it was pretty Mm -hmm. much propaganda goes a long way man yes it is but when you've got somebody in a position of authority like a father you're Mm -hmm. out in the middle of fucking nowhere this is like pretty much all you've grown up with it's all you've seen i mean Mm -hmm. you know you're gonna I think that Michael McCormick is an absolute piece of shit. I just wonder how much chance he had to not be a piece of shit. Right. I (laughs) mean, there's you either become your father or you go the opposite direction. And unfortunately, he like walked in his grandfather's footsteps. Yeah. But also he like never got away from there. I mean, until after he died, but. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying like, you know, you could be like, I don't want your life, daddy. Mm -hmm. And then you leave. Right. Yeah yeah a bunch of dicks totally toots toots well that's the case yeah thank you so much for listening and we will catch you on the next one bye bye okay you guys we have some shout outs for our newest patrons that we would like to give a little hey girl thanks to yay yay thanks to jake wild jen short carrie fletcher Justin Ware, Brianna Poston, Ashley Woodward, Ashton Smart, Melanie Medina, Marianna Bishop, Mandy McFly, Jessica Mortier, Rochelle Parrish, Sybil Crosby, Courtney Jones, Alicia, Christy, Jenny, Laura Henry, Pam, Elsie Scarrett, Carly Driver, Kelly Plyler, Angela Whittle, Samantha Haywood, Shelby Soto, Amber Miller. Jamie. Izzy. Colette. Lauren Zmijuski. Kathleen Luzik. Santoya Johnson. Kaylee Ross. Shanihilation. Yeah, it looks like uh, Shannon Setzer. <laughs> That's a cool yes, name. i love that. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Burt. Sarah Strode. Shelby Holiday, Lauren. Stefania Savino. Brandi Daly. Brandy, you're back. Hey. Rosemary Rice, Elizabeth Owens, Jerry, Cody Hardenbrook, Jess Hoosier, Laura Pennicott, Katie Carlson, Brenna Hudson, Isabella, Andrea Pina, Macy Kristen, Tristan Masto, Kathy Sanders, Paula, Becky Lou Forbes, M, Lauren Clanton, Mac Mockby, Hmm, this one says Bones, and there's no uh, other name, so no. there you go. Riff Randall. Katherine Jurgen, Cassidy Perry. Allison McAllishan? Mercedes A. Brittany. Kimberly Geiger. And Liana King. Thank you guys so much. Yay, we love you guys so much. We love you, bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.